How fast do you get there? Where do you put your foot? foot? Um, what side of the ball did you, you have to go? Do you, where, how do you make the play predictable? There's no coaching nowadays. People just put sessions on. Welcome to the Performance Lab, a new podcast that explores the behaviours of elite sports people to give you the blueprint for success both on and off the pitch. Each episode, we'll speak to the most compelling people in sport to understand the secrets of elite performance and help you to learn from them. My name is Ben Welch, and this week I'll be discussing effective strategies for developing young players with my co-host and performance guru, Ryan Wilson, and QPR's Head of Coaching and Technical Director, Chris Ramsey. Only 180 of 1.5 million boys who play organised youth football in England will become a Premier League pro. That's a success rate of 0.012%. Developing a talented youngster into a competent pro is incredibly difficult, but few coaches have a better record for maximising potential than Ramsey. Hi Chris and welcome to the podcast. Now, before we jump into the questions, I just wanted to quickly run through your fantastic career. As a player, you represented Brighton, Swindon and Southend before moving into coaching where you've worked in Malta, America and England. You've worked with various England age groups, including the under 16s, under 17s and under 20s. You occupied various roles at Tottenham during a 10 year spell, including head of player development and were promoted to first team coach where you assisted Tim Sherwood and Les Ferdinand and helped bring through some notable talent, including Harry Kane. In 2014, you joined QPR, where you've been Head of Player Development and Academy Manager, Head Coach of the Senior Team, and now Technical Director. In 2019, you were awarded an MBE for services to football and diversity in sport. It's fair to say there are few coaches in the game with the kind of pedigree you have when it comes to developing young talent. So what's the biggest lesson you think you've learned when it comes to developing young players during your fantastic career? Don't take anything for granted and don't expect people to fail and don't expect people to succeed. It's, it's, it's one of the things. I mean, I was at Orient as well uh, when I came back from Nashar uh, with um, players like Nicky Shorey and Steve, uh, Simon Downing, people like that. Expectations need to, be, need to be really modified. You know, people write people off too early. And also they, they push people up too quick as well. So that's the biggest thing I've learned is that is your, is your expectations need to be modified accordingly. Why is it so easy to make that mistake with young players? Because coaches have egos of being mini Mourinho's. So they want to win every game and they don't realise what the arena that they're in. And, and the biggest thing for me is understanding the arena that you're in. If, if you don't understand that arena, you won't develop a player. Because you, you could win every game. It, it looks good on your CV or when you're talking to people, but doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're going to produce a player. I mean, when we went to Tottenham, when we first started, you know, they, they had done it all right uh, before because they'd produced a legly king and people like that. But they had a massive dry spell. And during that time, you know, that they needed a revamp. So when John McDermott went in, they brought me in. And we started from scratch, really. A lot of the players were rejects from other teams. So if you look at most of the players that have been there, that, that we could the, that they talk about now, they'd all been to a lot of the other London clubs. You know, people at that time didn't see the potential in, the, in those players. So people make mistakes by 
wanting to emulate the first team too quickly. What young players uh, did you work with when they were kind of in the early stages in their academy and their development that have gone on to um, become household names? When I was at Orient, Nicky Shorey came through. You know, now, now don't get me wrong. I'm never going to say that I developed these players because it takes a team effort and also it, it, it takes the player to have the will and the timing to, to get where they are. So you're just part of the journey to create the environment to help the players. I was fortunate to work with Howard Wilkinson in the England setup with uh, players like Steve Gerrard, Jonathan Woodgate, uh, Joe Cole, Ashley Cole, Peter Crouch, all those players of that of that that uh, generation. And I, and, I, and I learned a lot working with those players and being worthy to work with those players and, and having the credibility to do it is also something. And then obviously, you know, working at, at, at Tottenham, you know, there was a host of players there that, that, that came through with Tom Carroll, Ryan Mason, Harry Kane, Stephen Corker, Harry Winks, from the Bill Bentaleb, Alex Pritchard, Andros Townsend, you know, and there's a lot of other players that play like Adam Smith's, um, uh, Nathan Burns that play in the championship now and, and players all over the world. You know, we, we've got, uh, we had a, a player called Milos uh, who plays who plays now in, I think, Wolfsburg, Iago Falke, who plays in, in Italy. There are many players that, that that came through our system that people don't know about that, that play around the world and play in the, in the different um in the different leagues and obviously at QPR you know we just had our 20th debut this season uh, since Les took took over we've had 20 debuts and over the last three years I think we've been in the top three academy minutes in in the Premier League and and the Championship so most of this season we've had three or four players in the the, the team from the the academy so it's long and hard but it's you know it's very rewarding of all the players that you've worked with, what one player sticks in your mind from working with them as a young player, whether they were the best player, whether they had the best attitude, whether they weren't really that good and then surprised you? Is there one player that you've worked with at youth level that sticks in your mind? I mean, we talk about uh, Ryan Mason. Ryan Mason, unfortunately, you know, had to retire from through a, a very horrible injury, but he was an outstanding footballer uh, and, and, and probably... Would have gone on to get more England caps had he not had the injuries that that, that he had. But all, all 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 of those those players that I worked with, you know, there is a, a connection that whether it be good or bad, that has you know helped me to find the the will to keep developing other players. Just want to go back to what you said about the amount of uh, debuts that you've had at QPR. I was actually wondering if you think that due to the impact of COVID and the transfer market, do you think that more teams will now be forced to force make it makes it sound negative, but they'll be in a position where they won't have to, where they won't be able to buy players. So they'll have to trust their academy and they have to trust their youth development and bring players through. Do you think we're going to see more of that now in the wake of the pandemic? You're right. It could be the fact that the pandemic is, is going to cause people to, and Brexit as well, is going to cause people to look in their in their academies because what's what's the point of having academies? You have clubs who have academies for 10, 20 years and never produce a player. So I don't understand what's the point of having, having academies unless you are actually going to look at producing players for your team. I mean, if you you think about it, we've we've had uh, we had situations where 
when Eze and Ilyas Chair and Ryan Manning and people like that were, were playing a couple of seasons ago, where they were earning pittance compared to the people that were on the bench. So I'm not going to tell you exactly what they were earning or what, what people were earning, but I'll give you an example of what you can have. You might have an academy player on the, on the pitch that's on £1,000 a week. You might have a player on the bench that's on fifteen grand a week. So don't tell me the player on the bench when he when he takes his place is is fourteen grand better than him, you know. It's, and, and people tend to get uh, this uh, misconception just just because you're experienced, you're you're better than 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 a young player. And loads of managers are in in that mindset. If you look at most of the teams that go down, how many of them have got you know a girth of youngsters playing? Not many. So you know until that misconception. Um, of of experience versus youth is is met in the middle because I'm not saying you should only play young players. I'm not saying that at all. You have to win games. But until people realise that just being experienced doesn't make you a good player uh, or a better player than a youngster, I, I think it, it will be stuck in the in the old times. And it's the only way, I think, if, if you get the, the COVID situation, may force people especially with the, uh, the fair play situation going on for a lot of the clubs in the championship now. There's two or three clubs that are going to get hit by the fair play rules. They may have no choice. But looking at your career, mm-hmm. as you've progressed from playing right the way through to today, your journey has gone and you've seen the football game at various different heights in various mm-hmm. different positions. And you've almost now, I'm not going to say made a niche, but really gone into that transition for player development from um, academy level football to mm-hmm. the business side of football. Mm-hmm. Per se, yeah? Do you believe, or how, do, how does that transition for these players as they're coming up and you, you know, you say you, you understand these guys, you, you, they're, they're like your sons, dealing with a variety of different cultures, de- mm. speaking to parents that may be English, European, Caribbean, African, X, Y, or Z. Do you believe that there's a variety of skills yourself as a coach and other coaches should use to support these players in focusing on that goal of, I want to be, I want, I want my dream. I want to become a pro. You know, do, what, what's your thoughts and what's your belief factor on those? No, it's a good question. Uh, I, I come from Islington, right, in central London. So I grew up with a variety of different cultures around me. So understanding and, and, and living with people from all over the world and experiencing uh, the cultures has helped me to, to deal with different players. I'm a qualified teacher, school teacher as well. So I've worked in schools where you do have to understand how to differentiate between different students, different uh, people. So um, I think it's important that, that we realise as coaches that we are teachers and I do realize and I do believe that the social element helps you to be a better coach because if you can't connect with the players um, e- e- either through their culture or even through their skills or any other in any other um, way that you want to do it, I don't really believe you can actually help a player to become better. Now, what I'm talking about connection, it doesn't always mean need to be conveyor art. It could be through, through positive fear could be that they don't want to disappoint you or disappoint their parents or anything like that. But how you can, you have to find what button is going to make that player get them to the next level, which is is uh, playing and working with the first team. I mean, having coached first team players and, and at the moment, because I have one foot in the first team camp and one foot in the academy, I understand what the first team manager wants 
and how to actually direct that player specifically to what that, that manager wants. Because ultimately, football is about being adaptable, really, to, to different managers. Because if you think about it, the average manager lasts 1.1 year. So at our club, I think we've had eight now, eight managers in five or six years. So, so say for I say we had Darnell Furlong, who left uh, last season, season before last. I mean, he had to adapt to five different managers. So understanding the boy and, and whether how he can adapt to different managers and what he needs to do in his personality to, to, to get to where he needs to, I think is very important. What about trying to get the, the boy to understand the coach? Mm. How being in your position, and I have some similar connections in regards to some of the players that I've worked with, sometimes trying to educate players on, per se, the English coaches, and they're from a different country, they don't mm. necessarily understand the cultural, what does that coach actually mean versus mm. their interpretation of our English? Mm. Um, how do you support and how do you, like, get the player from the developmental side to buy into that message because sometimes you're going to have to mediate through that chain yeah I, I first of all in order for me to do that i need to be upskilled constantly myself so, so to be that bridge you have to whatever materials you need if you need concrete you need wood you need bamboo you need to, to understand what the material that you need to connect to that to that coach to in order to bring the message over to the players because if you're not if you're not prepared to change and adapt because because listen let's be honest if you're unless you're actually totally in charge you're never going to 100% agree with what any manager wants you're not going to agree with it but you have to be seen to be in agree with it because ultimately you want your player to play now whether you whether if, if they want to play a system that you think doesn't suit your player, then you're going to have to, or the player of the club, it's not my player, the player of the club. You have to try to make sure that the player buys into what the manager wants, otherwise they're not going to play. Now, unless they've got economic value, they can easily be discarded. You know, if, if, if you, buy, if you buy, uh, bring somebody in now, a young player, and he costs four or five million pounds, then the, then the coach himself will have to try to get around him because he's a club investment. Now, depending on what level you're at, see, at our level, if we bring someone in for a million pounds, they have to play. Now, if you go into you go into one of the top six clubs, a million pounds, they could be forgotten. They they don't need, they could play in the under 23s and not even get in the under 23s team. So it's understanding where you, what the the mediums that the connector needs as the as the connector. What what are the mediums that I need in order to get the manager to to uh, link with the player and vice versa. How can we provide support for the players? Because sometimes these players are really young. Mm. They haven't got life skills, mm. which provide them with the, the layers to be able to identify mm. that they need to go through that process. Do you know what mm. I mean? Mm. Now, as we get older, we get wider, we understand a few other things, but do you believe from your experience, mm. um, players, can actually start to work on these attributes to increase their awareness? And if so, how, you know, what's your advice on how they could potentially do that? I think they can. I think what happens is, is in the academy, we had a, we had a psychologist uh, that 
I, I agree should work more on one-to-one than in a group because I think that people don't open out in groups. I think to get that level of resilience, I think it's important. But I also, what I changed it to was getting the psychologists to work with the coaches within the academy because I think the coaches influence the players more than anybody else because they pick the teams. So I think having more educated um, um, coaches to understand how to connect with the players to help them to be able to connect with other people, I think I think I think that's very important. But it's getting the right person or the right people that understand the game and understand what happens in the game and and understanding that football is probably a game of more lows than highs. People think that everyone only ever sees the top six, but they don't realise that the top six win all the time and everybody else loses most of the time. Oh, you know, people don't realise that. They always think, well, no, I'm going to play for X team. So you go and play for Crystal Palace. You've done well to stay in the, in the Premier League, but you probably lost more games than you've won. So that resilience to win the right amount of games, to win the right amount of fans to get you into the team and keep you in the team. I mean, fans meaning the coaching staff and, and being accepted by the rest of the players. I think that that's important. And I think the safety net, sometimes the safety net's too big and too cushy, but I think the correct safety net is important. So when people make mistakes, it's not a fatal mistake. You've made a mistake. So what? No one's died. Can, can you recover from it? And can you, can you make sure that, that, that you carry on? Also, ensuring that the coaching staff are aware that they have a duty to, to make that player feel comfortable, to give him the best possible chance to succeed. Um, and I think a lot of this, although we think there's a lot of new school, the pendulum, there's no middle pendulum. It goes swings from one end to the other. Either people are very old school or very fluffy. You just need that little bit of balance in between. Do you find that there's any particular attribute, regardless of culture or whatever the case may be, that has supported these individuals across the board to become successful as you develop them through? Well, in the, in the academies that I've worked in, we work on a strength-based capability process. So it don't really work that much on weaknesses unless it affects your, your game. So if you're a centre-half and you can stop the turn, you can run in behind, you can, you can uh, compete, but you can't head it, that's going to stop your development because if you can't head it, you're never going to be a centre-half. But I'm not going to work on your stepovers. I'm not going to work on things that are not going to affect you, your game. So we work on, on, as soon as we identify where the characteristics of a player and the strengths of their player, we, we, we hone in on that and make sure that they're good at it because you only get signed on your strengths. You don't get signed for your weaknesses. So what we don't what we don't do is have someone who's quite rounded, who's six out of ten out of everything. We'd rather get somebody who's eight, nine out of ten at something, and maybe five at his weaknesses. Is it a personality thing, Chris? So, let's just say everyone's got the same level of ability, or they're you know, it's very marginal the differences between who's good and who's not, or like who's good enough. Is it then about attitude? And what I kind of wanted to ask you about was going back to what you said about new school and old school, you know, being too fluffy, being too hard. So some people in their lives will come across natural um, trauma. Okay. So they might have a difficult home life. They might have overcome whatever, um, you know, so they're, they are therefore building resilience naturally in their life. They might, they, they might not overcome those issues. I don't, I don't necessarily believe you have to have a hard life to be resilient, but outside of that, how do you build resilience in a young player? If, they haven't got the emotional capacity to deal with different things. Um, 
they're, they're never going to come on no matter, no matter how much their talent is. There's very few that don't have the emotional ca ca capacity that, that get through. So we will use different mediums, like you were saying, to test players emotionally, but also to test that sometimes we might play someone in a position that we haven't thought of and that might they, they end up playing there. That's where they play. So... For argument's sake, Stephen Corker, when he came to us at Tottenham, he was a central midfield player. We moved him to centre half, and then 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 he's uh, Danny Rose was a winger, plays right back, uh, left back now. So sometimes you haven't exhausted that player's abilities around the pitch, um, and sometimes you have to play them in, in positions that that they may feel uncomfortable in to to, to see. You know what other people are going going through. So, but every medium you can use, if you you feel it's right for the player, you 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 do. I bet you've seen some unreal players in training, and then they get out in front of a a crowd, and it all you know, it all changes. Um, yeah, is that the hardest thing to prepare a kid for? Is you can do everything you like in training, but when you make a mistake in a game and you get a load of grief off the opposition. So you're playing against an experienced right back and he's in your ear all game. He's telling you your crap, that you're going to bottle it, that next time you get, I'm going to smash you. And then you've got the crowd giving you a load of grief. Mm. Is that Are those the biggest tests that a young player has to overcome if they're going to make the step from academy to the pro game? Well, I think playing in front of a crowd in itself is always uh, daunting. So that's why I think any good club dips players in and out. So they get used to the crowd. Now, I, I, I think, like you just you said before, I think as the player becomes closer to the first team, you become less tolerant in training. So they may be getting an earful more often than not. And hopefully that will um, help them to understand, look, you make a mistake, this is going to happen. And then training with the first team as well is, is also something that helps to, them to understand about the levels that are needed. But I don't think there's anything you can really, really prepare people for unless they do it. You can tell them all you want, you know, what it's going to be like, but they need to be, they need to be in it. And so a lot of the times I think the good clubs dip people in and out 10 minutes here, 20 minutes. Um, when we were at Tottenham, we, uh, Tim Sherwood and, and Les used to talk to, to the board about um, basically having club players so we used to call them 2-0 players. So if the club looks like you're winning 2-0 or 3-0 and it looks like the game's won, put your players on the bench. Don't have, um, don't have seven superstars on the bench on 60, 70 grand a week. Have two or three players from the, from the academy on the bench who are nearly ready to go in the first team. So if the game's won, you put them on. If your game's lost, you're losing 5-0, you might put them on as well. So... You've, you, you've got nothing to lose by making them get on the pitch and see, be involved in the game, in the crowd and whatever. So all you're doing in those games is building your assets behind the scenes. You know, um, I think Alex Ferguson was really good at doing that. Really good at doing that. Well, if someone, you like a player you're close to, is, you know he's going he's gonna to play, maybe he's making his debut or whatever, mm. what would you say to him? Night before or maybe the morning of the game, what are you going to say to him? It depends on the on the player. So if it was uh, some players, I wouldn't say anything. I would just see them at training the night, the day before. Say good luck. It depends on what banter level I'm, I'm with that player. If the, if if if, it, if it's uh, if it's a player that I feel like Ilias Chair, I'm on a good banter level with him. So we'd probably say to him, "Don't boot it over the bar." 
something like that, he would know, he'd be relaxing. He would know that I know that he's a good player and this and that and the other. Whereas someone like Ozzy Kaikai, who, who is a very serious, good lad, serious, nothing to really say to him because I know he's going to do well. All I, all, I, all I would say to him is do what I'd want him to maintain his focus. So I'd have to know the personality of the player and know at what, what sort of banter level I would be at them. There'd be another, another player I might just send a text to the night before. Or I might take a text to, if I thought it was a player that was unsure of himself, I'd probably send him a text an hour before the game. What mistake did you make as a young coach trying to develop young players? And has this more kind of bespoke approach that you've developed, has that come from experience? If I was to, to rewind the clock and probably look at my sessions, I'm thinking, what, what was you doing there? Do you know what I mean? Because I think we all do that and we look back and do it. But I've always been very much, because I wasn't a very good player. I was just an average Joe player and statistic in football. So I realised that being a better player would have been uh, certain things happened in my life, bereavements and stuff like that, where I was unprofessional, did not prepare myself in the, in the way that I should have done because there was an emotional uh, detachment from the game at one stage because of, you know, my mum passed away. So I understand about not preparing properly and not taking your chance. And the, the lack of working your technical ability to get you to the next, to the next level. So I've taken what I haven't done into my coaching. Uh, and one of the things that people don't realise, foot, coaching football in the community is probably your biggest test. So when you go to a community programme and you've got one kid who's six foot, one kid who's, who's five foot one, you've got the girl with, with the ribbons, you've got the kid who, who, who's overweight and can't run around, and you've got three balls and, 25, and, and two bibs, you have to then... But because you're you're egotistical, you actually want to do a good session. When I mean, the kids don't really care, they just want to play. So, how do you get that balance between having them to have fun and actually coaching? That the football in the community probably has taught me as much about coaching as anything anything else. Adapting to the individual rather than the the, the, the whole session, and obviously teaching in, in in classrooms and that you're adapting to the individual. In every in every uh, in every aspect, you mentioned about that focus and what would keep their focus going into that game or whatnot. And from coaching and looking at people who watch the professional game, I I kind of feel like everyone feels like footballers or even professional athletes have to focus on a full time basis. They even got to focus when they go to the shop. Um, do you believe that players? Should have like a bit of an on-off switch for focus. Yeah, I don't. I don't agree with that twenty-four hour pro approach. I think twenty-four hour pro. When you become profile, I think you have to be at a point in the public eye. I understand that, but I, I think life is for living, and I think it's really important that you do live your life because I think you can get too wound up, you can get over-focused, and then as you know, the arousal, the arousal curve starts going down, where you start getting. Uh, apathy because you can't keep that level of focus all the time. I think if, unless you actually come down sometimes, I don't think, I don't think you can maintain um, that complete level of focus all the time. Now, when you're in, as a professional, you are technically focused most of the time because you're not going to eat the wrong food. You're not going to get most footballers. You're not going to eat the wrong food. You're not going to 
go out with your mates when when they're all going out. Um, so in some respects, that's that's in you that you're that you're you're going to live like a professional. But I don't believe, you know, even a lot of coaches they come home, they watch games, they do they this they this. I think there's a there's a point. Listen, I'm saying that, and I do that, but I'm saying that there's a point where you need to come off it because it's not healthy to be on it all the time. You end up uh, plateauing. You know, I've got a young African player who, well, he's a refugee. He's come to England. Mm-hmm. He's he loves football. Uh, he, he's now in an academy. He's doing very well for himself. He still goes to the local park and mm. practices and practices mm. and practices mm. and practices. And he now decides to hide that practice away from the professional outfit because he feels that when I don't do this, I'm no longer good. Mm. This keeps me on my toes. This keeps, how do one, the coach or the professional institute manage that? Or how do you facilitate that? Because ultimately, again, like you said, we need to safeguard the asset, safeguard the player, but ultimately we want to see him grow and develop in a way in which is engaging and transforming for him. I mean, you would, you would, you would admire that because you think, well, you know what, if that's what's got him to where he is, he's scared to lose it. He's scared to lose that what's got him there. Now, obviously, as we start getting into the sports science bit where there's overloading and getting overused injuries and stuff like that, there's a fine balance between him maintaining his his focus and also maybe him going to the park might be the thing that gives him the confidence, might be the thing that that, makes sure that his touch is right and stuff like that. So I, I, I personally would turn a blind eye to that unless I thought it was affecting him physically. Because I would want him to actually be—he's—he's he's maintaining his humbleness, isn't he? That's what he's doing. He's maintaining the fact that he realizes he's been a refugee. He does not want to go back there. The fear of going back there is probably making sure that he—he does—he—he he does what he needs to do. Um, Chris, is um, the like say you were kind of talking to. Uh, a room full of grassroots coaches playing all kind of, uh, coaching all different kinds of level. Yeah. And they've got one kid who's an extraordinary talent within that team. Mm-hmm. Um, what advice would you give them to coaching that kid, uh, you know, making sure they progress at the right time, challenging them enough, even though they're kind of clearly the best player in the team? I would say for the grassroots coaches, first of all, ensure that they're still enjoying it because uh, if they're the best team, best player, and you you want to be a mini Mourinho yourself, you might want to win the game and you're going to put pressure on that player to, to score all the time and to play centre-forward. So what you find is most of the time, people will put the best player at centre-forward. And then so they score. But they forget that the centre-forward has to receive the ball from somebody. So they, they end up now not not making that asset what they what they want. So I think you've always got to look at where the player, what the enjoyment the player has. And you've got to look at the flock. He won't get anywhere without the rest of the group helping him. So I would always say, say to them, be careful how much you coach him compared to the other the, the other players. Uh, we done an experiment once at our place where where uh, a coach spoke to one player in the game 70 in the session 73 times. And he coached a player that was he didn't rate seven. So it's about making sure that that player feels special without feeling that he's the only player in the, in the team and keeping him grounded. 
so that he feels that he needs to keep learning. Because a lot of the times, the, the special players, because they're successful all the time, people stop, stop coaching them. At what stage would you introduce tactical stuff? So we're just focusing on early stages. I imagine it's enjoyment and technical and awareness and that kind of stuff. When do you start? When would you start introducing tactics? Now, I know it's dependent on the player, but let's talk broadly at grassroots level. We work on a pyramid. So at the bottom of the pyramid is extreme technique. So they can do what they like. They dribble. They, 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 so they start with a shape because that's what happens. You know, you're, you're playing roughly at the back, whatever, but they recover into, they just recover. They don't really recover into it. But what happens is, is as, you, as we get older, say after under 10, because of the league, you have to have, you're going to play nine aside or seven aside. So you have to have a shape. You have to have a shape to, to play. So we, we, we call that uh, movement experimentation. So they play all over, all, 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 over, all over the place, but they start playing on different parts of the pitch. So really roundabout, when the pitches get bigger, we start looking at the different tactical uh, um, things. And then we go up to movement refinement. So when they start getting to 13, 14, the different characteristics, growth spurts, stuff like that. So for argument's sake, I always like the ball hitting me. So I don't mind blocking, you know, and some people don't, it doesn't matter how big and strong they are, they don't like that. And other people have got a knack of scoring. So people's characteristics and personalities start coming more into, into play then. So we talk about uh, movement refinement means that now the positional uh, part of the pitch becomes less, you know, in the matter of one or two positions, trying to get their, uh, their scholarships. We talk about positional refinements because when they come into a club, they come in as a this or as a that. So you're not going to sign seven left wingers because they'll never, they'll never play. So you have to, you have to pick positional uh, things. Now, listen, when we were at Tottenham, we generally signed forward players and then we, we, we had time and a budget to allow us to refine them even more. But when they come into the club, then you're looking at developing expertise. So you look at very bespoke sessions for their position and their type of player and taking their characteristics into, into consideration and what they're like. So all number nines are not the same. Some drop off, some run in behind, some hold the ball up. So they're not all the same. So you have to look at the, you can't make them all the same. You have to look at the characteristics of the player, job description, then their zone of proximal development. So where's their zone of proximal development? And we do that all the way through. So um, so tactics is, is, people think tactics is about formations, about four, three, 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 five, two. Tactics, a lot of the times when, when, we, when they talk about the different corners, the, you know, the, the, the physical area, the technical area, the tactical area, we don't. We put all the tactics into, into the psycholo psycholo psychological area because tactics is about thinking. That's what it is. It's about thinking and emotion, isn't it? Tactics. You feel when you need to step up. You feel when you need to go tight, when you need to drop off. You feel when you're working with a unit and you have to push up. So tactics... It's generally all the way through. It depends how you look at it. Do you know what I mean? It just depends how you look at tactics. Tactics is not always about the low block and the high block and the Gagan press and the this and the that. It's not always about that. You have individual tactics and you have uh, unit tactics and team tactics. So we, we, don't, we don't focus a lot on tactics. What we do is we focus on teaching people how to... The basics, the basis of the principles of the game and how they manipulate it into a tactic that a coach 
once because the principles don't change regardless of what the shape is or the system. So it's really more of a style, more of a style than a than a tactic. I mean, and one of the things about developing the coach, we've got Paul Furlong, uh, Paul Hall, Andy MP, Mike Hyden, Andy Bancola, all been, um, I think four of them have played in the Premier League and they've played in different leagues and they've been all coaching for roughly a decade each or more in, in some cases. And they come and work in the academy one night a week. So they'll work, you, you, you go in there and see an ex-Premier League player working with the under-10s, but properly, not just, you know, as, you know, I've got, oh, I've got a beer. They'll do it and they'll co coach, educate the other coaches as well. So uh, that develops the coach, develops their communication because it gives them versatility in their communication. And um, it's, about, it's about people understanding that coaching is about teaching. It's not just about putting a team out to win, unless you're in the first team. Hey, Chris, you have a coaching session to do. You've mm. got the world's finest players in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Will Chris differ in his coaching approach and style? Then now I'm going to say, right, you've just finished with all of them. I'm about to take you to Ragas Rovers. You've got half a bib, three cones, and you need to deliver the same session to these guys who can't kick a ball three yards. Do you as a coach, what's that process? You've got the creme de la creme, but you're delivering the same principle. You're basically delivering the same session. Does that change who you are? Well, no, because everything's about scaffolding. You have to scaffold the session and you have to have a zone of proximal development. So if you're doing ball striking, say for argument's sake, and you've got the best player and you're doing it, where's his zone of proximal development? His zone of proximal development might be now he can strike the ball, he can bend it with the outside of his foot, but can he bend it with the inside of his foot? What, 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 what am I scaffolding? Where, 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 where does he need pushing on from? And if it could be that he's not good at slotting, that's where his end zone of proximal development starts. There, that's the bit that he, that he needs to move on from. So you have to look at where, where do you understand the, their zones of proximal development? You do the same session, but you just do it where their zone of proximal de development starts. So if I'm going now to work with the, the ragas team and we're doing ball striking, their zone of proximal development starts at the run-up to the ball. Do you see what I mean? So it's the same session, but where is your zone of proximal development? Where does it start? And, and where are you at at? Now, if, they, if they're running up to the ball and toe punting it, Maybe their zone now is can they put their toe down and hit it with 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 the meat of their foot, and then if the ball doesn't doesn't move very far, can they follow through? Mm -hmm. Now, if they don't hit it very well, what's the balance with their arms? If their arms are good but they're still not hitting it very well, are they bending their supporting leg well enough? So all these things are zone of proximal development and ball striking. Where are you in that? If you're a top player, it could be that you get 10 chances, but you only score three because two of them go over the bar. Now, as we know, all the top players still like to be coached. It's the middle players that don't like to be coached. The players that think that they're, that they're good, but they're earning good money, but they don't really want to be coached. So the top players stay top because they always refine in what they do. Yeah. So you've got coach who coaches your under 10s, not someone like Andy Impey or any of them, Paul Furlong coming down, you've got an under-10s coach, 
And I've regularly seen under-10s coach, he gets drafted in. Can you help me with the under-18s on a Saturday? He or she is up for it. To them, this is their professional coaching debut. They didn't notice that they were professional coaches before, but now they are. Yeah, They're about, they're stepping up, they're thinking, I need to win today. Yeah, But everything you've just described mm. is more about focusing on the goal at hand. Mm-hmm. And the goal is the player development. Mm. But what I found as a coach and supporting other coaches are that some of these coaches are still trying to grow and develop themselves. Mm-hmm. So they put themselves ahead of the larger population and the actual goal at hand, which you described beautifully with the whole scaffolding framework and your actual focus on continual player development. You've got that framework and, and I can hear it coming out. So, you know, I, I find that admiration, but do you feel like, is there any advice for these mini Mourinho's where they can start to f- continually focus on the goal at hand? If you as their boss, they're looking up thinking, how do I impress Chris? How do I move on in my career? What, could, what advice could we give them so that they do remember to do that? Well, what they've got to remember is, unless you are, especially in the professional game, unless you are one of the 92 managers, 92 first-team coaches, 92 physios, 92 uh, sports science, you're involved in development. If you, Because the only team that has to win is the first team. Who categorically has to win is the first team. So unless you're one of those 92, you're developing players. So most, most coaches are developing players. So understanding the principles of coaching doesn't change whether you're coaching um, the first team or whether you're coaching the, 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 the really young players. It's about understanding that there's a process to teaching. So I'm a primary school teacher to start with. And then I was a secondary school teacher and then I've done some lectures at uni. You can still teach maths at uni. You can still teach adding up and taking away at uni, but it's what level you're teaching it at. If you're teaching kids in, in, in the infants, you're just teaching the same thing, but you're just choosing the appropriate level for them to learn the same thing at. So that's where, that's where I think a lot of coaches fail because what they're doing is they're teaching people uh, trigonometry and all that sort of stuff at under nine. So they're, 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 they're going straight to the end and hoping that the, the, the client is ready for that level. And that's why we work on strength-based capability. So you do get some geniuses around the nine, don't you? That, yeah. that are nine years old, to nine years old, and they pass in GCSEs. Mm-hmm. So wherever their capabilities are, that's where their zone of proximal development is. So coaches have to understand where their zone of proximal development is and accept that they may not be ready to coach under 18s because the speed of play means that they've lose, they miss things. Yeah. So the speed of play means that they miss things. They don't look across the... They were looking at the board all the time and looking at... The, instead of looking at the players coming up, they're looking at the, what the player is doing on the overlap rather than the player running in the box, as well as looking at that at the same time. So they got to understand where they are. They think they understand the game. We all do on a screen, but we don't when it's when it's it's happening in real life. And understanding where your personal zone of proximal development is is probably the, the strongest thing that you can do to make yourself better. That was brilliant, Chris. I've learned a lot about 
just the kind of nuances of coaching from this conversation and realise that it seems so ridiculous now that coaches are trying to you're a, kid, a coach at youth team level and he's like, yeah, we like to press the ball and play it out from the back. But after players can't even control the ball and they don't even know. Exactly. Exactly. So what they don't understand, if you can't control it, forget systems. Because if you can't do that, playing out from the back. You know, when I hear people say that, you know, people talk about last season, we talk about playing out from the back. <laughs> right. So I'm saying you don't play out from the back. What you do is you, we, we talk about playing the furthest comfortable pass. If it's a 1v1 with a very fast forward, the goalkeeper should just kick it to the forward to score, right? But it's not comfortable because usually they're marked. The next pass should go into midfield. Usually it's not comfortable because it's congested. That's why you play out from the back. Because the game's only about scoring, isn't it? <laughs> the game's about scoring at the end of the day. It's about scoring. So if it's a 1v1 and you think your man can, can score, kick it forward and give him a chance to score. But that's not a comfortable pass because generally there's more than one player there. So the furthest comfortable pass is our principle from playing out from the back. So first thing the keeper gets it, can, can we score? If we can't score, then I'll play to the player that's free and this, we're not going to give the ball away. <laughs> it's, so, it's so simple that said, that's not, it's not as simple as that, is it? I think it is. People want to indulge themselves and, uh, you know, they talk about pressing, but, you know, they've got the strikers running, chasing down the defenders, but then half the team is in their own half, you know, not fit enough to play it or just do, do not understand it. And you just get so many coaches that they play for themselves. They don't say that this is the individual development. When you press, how do you press? What's your body shape like? How fast do you get there? Where do you put your foot foot? Um, what side of the ball does you, you have to go? Do you, where, how do you make the play predictable? There's no coaching nowadays. People just put sessions on. There's no, there's no detailed coaching. There's just, oh, we pressed. Well, where did you press? When did you press? What was the trigger? What, were the, what was your goalkeeper doing? Did he push up? Did the back four push up? What was the distances? <laughs> None of that. When it boils down to it, really, it's not a crime to have an ego. But it depends where your ego lies. If your ego should lie at how many players come through to reach their potential, that's where your ego should lie. You should, you should having an ego is important, but we, you should be thinking, right, how many of these players could I get into a club? How many of these players could I get to the next level? How many of these players are going to reach their potential because I've put the session on that's going to help them to reach where they want to go? That, that's where your ego should be. And even as a first-team manager, first-team manager, same thing. He goes and manages a team. How far can I get this team? You know? So, you know, that's that's just a bit of food for thought for any grassroots coaches that 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 don't understand the arena that they're in, which is the enjoyment one. When you look back at what you've achieved and how many careers that you've had an influence on, and I know, you know, you said at the top, you're not taking sole responsibility. You appreciate that it's a team effort how proud are you of what you've done and the connections you have with players and, and the involvement you've had in some fantastic careers? It must make you feel really great. It, it, listen, it really does. It really does. Um, and as much as the players that, 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 that haven't, you know you've made mistakes. And so anyone who's a, who's a coach who says they've not made mistakes uh, and look at you must regret at times things that you could have done better to help the players that have, gone, that, that have not made it. You know, because it's impossible to say that you got everybody, everyone right. Because if you think about the statistics, is 
I think it's 0.012% out of 1.5 million that, that, that make it. So you have to think to yourself, there's loads of players in there that, that didn't make it. And they might have made it, might not have made it because of you. Mm. You know, they might have need another coach, which is why we have a team of coaches like the ones I mentioned before. And then when I was at Tottenham, we, you know, I had, um, you know, I worked with uh, Alex Inglethorpe, John McDermott, Les Ferdinand, Tim Sherwood, uh, Bradley Allen, people like that, Perry Sutlin, all people like that. So you have a team of coaches that, 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 you know, even the ones that were the younger co- worked with the younger players like Ozzy Abanji and Danny Buck, all these people you use as libraries. They've all got knowledge and they, they might have something that you don't have to infuse that player. You might have more knowledge than some people, but they might have a connection because without that connection, you don't get that player. Simple. You do not get that player. So you have to use all those, the, those different libraries of, of, of knowledge uh, and, and abilities to help, to help the players. I think a lot of coaches, even down to the players, need to take it upon themselves to think to themselves, you know what, my development moving forward, it does need a framework. If we're developing players, with the players developing themselves, people need to start falling on frameworks. And I think that's what that's a big message that I've taken out of what you've been saying today, Chris. I just want to say I'm like I'm really, really grateful for your time, Chris. It was a really good conversation. Thanks very much. I think anyone who listens to this is going to take a lot from it. So I really appreciate it, mate. Thank you ever so much. Yeah, thank you very much, Chris. Hopefully I'll see you again soon. See you later, guys. Cheers, Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers. So that's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. I really enjoyed chatting to Chris and took a lot from his insight into coaching young players and helping them develop. I hope you were able to take some valuable pointers from that conversation so you can apply his knowledge and experience to your own coaching methods, whatever level you're working at. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank Chris for giving up his time to chat to us with such honesty and passion. Now make sure you join us next week for episode five, where we'll be talking to Bournemouth and Bosnia and Herzegovina goalkeeper Azmir Begovic about resilience and how he overcame a tough start in life as a refugee to go on and win the Premier League of Chelsea and represent his country at a World Cup. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify so you never miss an episode. And if you have time, please leave a five-star review. And then, if you can go that extra mile, please find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram with the Performance Lab podcast. Hit follow and stay up to date with all our latest content. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you for episode five.